You've got a public Twitter account. There's no secrets from me. I've got some tragic news, which is that I am literally drinking the last of my instant coffee right now. Oh, shit. I'm going to die. You pop to the shop. Well, I have more coming from Amazon tomorrow, so I don't really want to go buy another pot when I've got six coming. Yeah, you've got less of a problem than me then. (laughs) Well, I have ground coffee. I can do French press. Oh, right. Okay, well. Yeah. There's not, like, literally no coffee in my house. Yeah, that would not really be okay. It's a little bit shaky, this thing. What, the desk? Yeah, I might have to go and tighten some screws at some point, but... I'm not going to lie, I assembled quite a lot of flat pack furniture and then like had a man come around and do a lot of screw tightening and putting doors on things for me. Yeah, I don't really want Jack touching my desk. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I, I can't want anyone interfering with my carefully messy wires. Expertly messy. Exactly so. Uh, yeah, it might take me a minute to get to full functioning level because uh, as listeners who follow me on Twitter know, I stayed up late last night rewatching all of Division because the finale came out today. Actually, no, I rewatched the first seven episodes last night and then I got up this morning, watched episode eight and then watched the finale. Oh, cool. How how long are the episodes? Well, the first sort of chunk of the series, because it's like kind of parodying sitcoms, so they are like half hour mm-hmm. episodes. Okay. And then they get longer as like it gets more involved in puzzle boxy. Oh, interesting. So that's the, the freedom of going straight to a streaming platform, I suppose. Yeah, they don't they have did? to. Yeah, it's only on streaming. It's yeah. not on a channel anywhere, which means, yeah, episodes huh. can be any length, which is an exciting thing. An this exciting new world thing. of television. I'm all, I'm very excited about this new world of television at the moment. Yes, let us bow to our Disney overlords. Yeah, I mean, I hate that one company now owns <laughs> everything, but at the same time, like, I'm very excited well, about what's being made. Not quite. Netflix and Amazon have got their... I know you'll never get to it because you've got a massive backlog of podcasts somehow, but I just listened to a fantastic two and a half seasons because half of it's still coming out on the tech giants. So Netflix, Amazon, Google, and they're halfway through Google. I think it's called Land of the Giants or something. I'll link it in the show notes. Part of me thinks that I'll just, I'll just get very terrified about the future if I listen to it. Well, probably not anymore. You are already, but yeah. <laughs> There's only so many existential Some of the rants I've had in the group chat may have been partly fueled by that. <laughs> There's only so many existential crises I've got time for in a day. I'm trying to learn coding and sewing. You can have an existential crisis while doing JavaScript. It's pretty much mandatory. It's the only way it Um, works. 90% of the time I do JavaScript, I'm having an existential crisis. (laughs) And I've gone right back to the very basics of JavaScript because I can't remember anything from when I was studying it two months ago. That's because it's all nonsense. But yes. My brain is just literally not present. What's wrong with your brain? I don't know. Have you slept? I've slept. Are you taking your vitamin D? I've slept. I've had vitamin D. I've been running every day this week. I'm just having a really, like, you know when you just completely and totally... Just brain mad. fog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fog. Physical fog. Everything's Ugh. fog. I think it's because the weather's gone shit again, to be honest. I was so fucking great last week because the sun was out. It does make a lot of difference. I don't think I cried randomly in the morning once last week. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I definitely have this week, but I, again, I'm blaming Paul Bettany. Blaming what? Paul Bettany, because he plays Vision in WandaVision, and he does this oh, th- sure, sure, sure. He does this thing with his face, and it makes me cry. All right, my love. Uh, do you want to get a coffee? Do you have a coffee? Do you have more coffee? Do you want to make French coffee press now? That's probably a good idea. I definitely need to massively caffeinate. Yes, grab coffee, do okay. podcast. Hello and welcome to The Truth Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Fratchett's Discworld series, one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part two of our discussion of Lords and Ladies. Part two is the middle act. Act two. Act two. you could say. How many acts are there in A Midsummer Night's Dream? I can't remember. Good. It's my favourite Shakespeare play. I've studied it intensely. I couldn't tell you anything about it right now. <laughs> the fact it exists. Well, that's something. Do you want to do a little spoiler warning? Ah, yes. Note on spoilers. This is a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Lords and Ladies, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there, so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Possible spoilers also for A Midsummer Night's Dream, although if you haven't gotten around to it in the last few hundred years, I doubt you will now. Yeah, spoilers for a 500-year-old play, but really that's your own fault. I literally don't know what happens at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream, so... Uh, Everyone gets married. So there's, like, parallels with everyone pairing off in this one. Yes. 
towards the end of this section, yeah? Okay. Yeah, people end up paired off. Cool. So we have some, what do we call them, missives from the round world? Dispatches from the round world. Dispatches from the round world, thank you. Uh, We had an email from a Geordie, um, from someone called Geordie, not from a Geordie. They're from Santa Cruz, (laughs) probably not a Geordie, but called Geordie. Hi, Joanna and Francine. I thought you might enjoy a new connection between Discworld and Gormenghast that I just put together as I was listening to your first pod on pyramids. Nice bit of alliteration. Thank you very much. Uh, I love that book and I've read it a bunch, but possibly not since reading Gormenghast. And this time, the description of King Tepikimon going mad and thinking he's a seagull rang a bell. Light spoilers ahead for Gormenghast, everyone. Hopefully just enough to make you want to read it. In the first novel of the Gormenghast trilogy, Lord Sepulcrave, 76th Earl of Grone and father of the eponymous Titus Grone, I can see why Pratchett likes this, uh, <laughs> is a ruler of a rundown kingdom that he doesn't understand or want, practically a slave to the ritual. After a tragedy, he is driven insane and comes to believe he's one of the death owls that haunts the Tower of Flints and meets a similarly tragic fate as Tepikimon. Also, he has a similarly mad old priest running things, so... We really should read Gormenghast. We should probably do our homework from a year and change ago. Uh, because if we had, we'd have sounded really cool making that connection. <laughs> a bold of you to assume we'd managed to make that connection, even if we had read Gormenghast. <laughs> oh, yeah, and all right. <laughs> B, I'm still torn between, I genuinely want to read it. It sounds like a very interesting book. And more so after Geordie's email. Thank you, Geordie. But I'm also still slightly attached to the bit of never doing that first bit of homework. Yeah, I think one of us at least will have to hold off. Yeah. I'll tell you what, you read Gormenghast, I'll stay attached to the bit. All right, yeah, that seems fair. (laughs) You being the one who's actually in gainful employment right now. Oh, uh, further dispatch from the round world. Uh, The uh, listener of ours hosts their own podcast, Bewilderbeast Pod, and they've got an upcoming, which is about animals and things and stuff to do with animals. Uh, they've got an episode coming up uh, where, among other things, they'll be talking about Aeschylus, the Greek playwright killed by a turtle. Aha. And going into his history in a bit more depth. I believe the episode is due out on March the 15th. We'll link to it in the show notes when it's out. That sounds rather good. In the meantime, let me just find you their Twitter so you can investigate for yourself. It's uh, at Bewildered Pod. Cool. So, yes, check them out. All So, on to the episode. Francine, would you like to tell us what happened previously on Lords and Ladies? Certainly. Previously on Lords and Ladies, our favourite witches are no longer abroad, but the trio touched down to some troubling changes in Lanka. Some whippersnapper Wiccan wannabes are practising magic with a K on the proper witch's turf. Granny challenges the ringleader and wins, with a little help from Nanny, but it's clear that the youngster is unusually powerful. Worse still, she's been taking the other girls to dance around the dancers, an arcane stone circle that guards a thin point between worlds. Meanwhile, Magrat is more or less proposed to, and the local lads sulkily prepare for a theatrical production, and we learn about the birds and the bees. Marvellous so to speak. So in this section of Lords and Ladies, which is page to page, 129 to 255. You know what you're about. Uh, in this I section, know that you wrote it down for me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we open on a pensive granny rummaging through a special box as she experiences flashes of someone else's deja vu. A selection of young locals arrive on her doorstep in the hope of obtaining occult knowledge. She sends them away with a lesson on being literal as elsewhere a sulking Diamanda runs to the stones. A dozing nanny dreams on elves before donning her walking boots and taking Grebo on an adventure. Granny confronts Diamanda at the stones, but the young would-be witch runs away in the wrong direction. And Granny and Diamanda find themselves confronting the Queen of Elfland. With a little equine confusion, they make their escape, but not unscathed, as Diamanda takes a hit. They make it back through the stones with an elf in tow. Luckily, nanny waits with a handy rope. They capture the furious fae and make their way to the castle. Nanny, Granny and their unconscious charges rudely interrupt Magret and Verence's breakfast. Magret tends to an injured Diamanda as Granny informs the king of the captured elf and locks him in the dungeons. Meanwhile, our worldly wizards find their journey to Lanka rudely interrupted by a band of bandits who get more than they bargain for as one of their number finds himself somewhat rounder and more orange. Is that a ragtag band of bandits? Yes, ragtag band of bandits. Thank you. Thank you. 
The local comic artisans rehearse at the dancers. After a few scumbles, they land on the idea of an open-air performance. The rest of Lanka hunkers down as Nanny prepares for bath time. The wizards make it to the outskirts of Lanka and find themselves almost terrified by a troll. Ridcully attempts reminiscence again before they make their way to the town proper, meeting King Verence and Sean with a mail delivery and a tome on martial arts. Panic and petulance set in for Magritte as she checks on the ailing Diamanda and her iron surroundings. Magritte investigates Verence's chambers and makes a couple of surprising discoveries. In the Great Hall of the Castle, the celebrations begin, although Magritte is nowhere to be seen. Nanny catches up with Old Conquest, Casananda, and violins fail to play as Granny and Ridcully meet across a crowded room before teleporting somewhere quiet. As Granny and Ridcully wander and chatter, Granny identifies the origins of her deja vu before being rudely interrupted by a unicorn. Magritte sulks in her room after her realisations. As the entertainment begins, Nanny goes for a -a tete-a-tete with Casananda, and Granny and Ridcully go for a late-night swim. Snow falls in the circle as the entertainment begins. Granny and Ridcully get lost in the woods. Magritte prepares for a dramatic exit in an excellent dress. Nanny does terrifying things to a lobster. Brooks wipes out wasps. And Diamanda wakes as the walls between the universes wane thin. Ooh, the creepy pearly eyes. Yeah, again, some good horror writing in this section. God, didn't you get pissed off with Magritte when she took the iron away? You think Granny Weatherwax is doing that for funsies? Yeah, that seemed like the most, we'll get to it, but that seemed very like out of character for her as well. Uh, helicopter and loincloth watch. Mm. Page 192, actual loincloth. Actual literal loincloth. The troll is wearing a loincloth and a helmet. So he's quite mm. overdressed for a troll. Official troll. Official troll in his loincloth. So, yep, words loincloth on the page, which keeps me justified in having this bit in... Sure, yeah. Soon to be a soggy loincloth. <laughs> Soon to be a soggy loincloth, very true. Uh, and for other odd bits we're keeping track of, uh, it's once again pointed out that we are in the century of the fruit bat. We are indeed. Disappointingly, according to some. Well, yeah. I wouldn't want to be in the century of the fruit bat. So, on to quotes. Yours is first. This is the, I was always going to find a way to shoehorn this in, and I ended up just sure. putting it as my quote. <laughs> and then there's the guest list. It's bad enough at an ordinary wedding, what with old relatives who dribble and swear, brothers who get belligerent after one drink, and various people who aren't talking to one another because of what they said about our Sharon. Royalty has to deal with entire countries who get belligerent after one drink, entire kingdoms who have broken off diplomatic relationships after what the Crown Prince said about our Sharon. Verence had managed to work all that out, but then there were the species to consider. Trolls, trolls and dwarves got on all right in Lanka by the simple expedient of having nothing to do with one another. But too many of them under one roof, especially if drink was flowing, and especially if it was flowing in the direction of the dwarves, and people would be breaking people's arms off because of what, more or less, their ancestors said about our Sharon. <laughs> I really feel for Sharon in all of this. I know, poor Sharon. She gets a horrible time of it. So... I've got a slightly later on one. I'm really fun. glad you got this in because I was struggling to, uh, again. Yeah, well, it's one of those ones where there are a few different, like another obvious one would have been the um, personal's not the same as important one. Yeah, which is one of Granny's most famous lines. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But I figured, yeah, we'd mention that anyway, as I just did casually. <laughs> <laughs> so this is when... Granny Weatherwax spots Ridcully across a crowded room, more or less. Uh, Granny Weatherwax turned. There should have been violins. The murmur of the crowd should have faded away, and the crowd itself should have parted in a quite natural movement to leave an empty path between her and Ridcully. There should have been violins. There should have been something. There shouldn't have been the librarian accidentally knuckling her on the toe on his way to the buffet. But this, in fact... There was. <laughs> I love that moment. Another beautifully highfalutin romantic speech broken by a down-to-earth, can't get more down-to-earth than a orangutan's knuckle, can you? <laughs> <laughs> they are quite low to the ground. Yeah. So character stuff, we're revisiting existing characters mostly because they all had some interesting beats I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Starting with, of course, our uh, witches and granny. And one thing I noticed that I've not picked up on before reading this is granny... So Granny and Diamanda's relationship, there's some parallels to Granny's relationship with Magrat. Diamanda's a different sort of belligerent and has a different sort of power. I mean, I think Magrat, as much as she's obviously a bit of a wet hen in the book, she does have magic in her. 
and she is quite a powerful witch in her own way. Yeah, and she's got the scientific mind. Yeah, she's got the research witch background. But there's this, and obviously Granny's seeing her younger self in Diamanda. She's Diamanda's doing exactly what Granny's younger self nearly did, going to the stones and talking to the queen. And yeah, but she's got this great rant. She's saying, "Oh, when you're lonely, people around you seem too stupid for words, and when the world is full of secrets, no one will tell you." Yeah. And that reminded me so much of Granny's relationship to Magret, where Magret is frustra- constantly frustrated and going, why can't you just explain this to me? Yeah. Like, especially in Witches Abroad, but also in this, where Granny's not bothering to just explain the elves in detail to her. Yeah. One of those short-sighted, like, I cannot be doing with having this conversation right now things. Because yeah. she correctly predicted what Magret would say, but unfortunately, because she didn't take the time, then we had all the business. Yes, I mean, that is like the whole plot of the book, so it would have been a much shorter book if Granny had taken the time, but... Yeah, it's a problem with plots, isn't it? And it's like, oh, well, it would be nice if if you'd sorted this out, but I suppose that it wouldn't be a book, would it? (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, you've got the comparison between her younger self and Diamanda, where Nanny's pointing out, I remember there was a girl just like her who was bad-tempered and impatient and a pain in the bum. I like that Nanny is one of the few people who will regularly call Granny out and not suffer for it. Yeah, and the other way round, as uh, Granny stopped Nanny from cutting an elf. Well, that was something with Granny's bit and Nanny's bit I found quite interesting, is they both got this very, very steely practicality, but in Mm. like Granny carrying Diamanda over her shoulder so she doesn't get shot, which does make sense. Also to rescue her, her, and I do like the reminder that uh, agricultural economy is built entirely on the lifting power of little old ladies in black dresses. Absolutely. That's from a very early book, wasn't it? Yep. Don't ask me which one. I can't remember. I wasn't going (laughs) to. Listeners, send us a postcard in the usual way via Albatross. And and obviously the line you brought up, the personal isn't the same as important. She's got that practicality. Yeah. And then Nanny's got her version of it as well which you know they bust into the castle with this injured unconscious girl and nanny just drifts off over to the breakfast buffet because she's sort of like well there's nothing i can really do it's being handed there's food yeah she's been around too many emergency situations to think that somebody hovering back a few feet is in any way useful yep i am quite concerned in that scene i understand the ketchup and fried egg sandwich but then she finds herself a lamb chop and why were there lamb chops on the breakfast buffet (laughs) So Nanny's got her version of practicality. Um, she's described as comfortingly solid at one point, which I really enjoy as a description. Definitely of this world. But she's also incredibly willing to torture the elf and needs Granny holding her back. They balance each other really well. Yeah. But it's sort of implied that Nanny's extra anger, where she's willing to torture slash kill that elf immediately, is related to her role as a mother yeah and i think they've both got that weakness somewhere in them haven't they um, they have but in very and if, they call it out in each other yeah but if you look at this as like the maiden mother crone obviously granny gets described as a crone at least once in this section and that gives her different priorities to nanny who is very much the mother of the three mm. and because she's the mother she's thinking about her children and her grandchildren being taken and that's why she is so willing to kill herself yeah and then you've got Magret as the maiden who acts like a fucking dumbass. Speaking of Magret, her panic about being queen is quite funny just because there's the line in there, she'd never quite analyse that emotion, which, relatable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to put that in a box and worry about it later. I thought there was a feeling about loving Varence. It was more, well, it was about loving Varence and realising that she'd not really thought about the royalty. Like, that was never a priority for her. It was being with Varence that was the priority. Yeah. And she'd lost some of that in the royalty of it all. Yeah. Because she was so busy having to learn how to queen and having these stupid meals where they sat at opposite ends of an incredibly long table mm. and looking at a uh, twerp's peerage, which is a tiny throwaway joke that always makes me giggle. Yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten what the real one's called. It's called Burke's t- peerage. Oh, well, yeah. Which nearly hence, bad. <laughs> yeah. Which... I didn't know where Burke came from as, because Twerp and Burke are both very, very British, not very serious things to call someone. It's calling someone yeah. a bit silly if you call them a Twerp or a Burke. Burke like silly goose. <laughs> but Burke 
comes from rhyming slang, and the full version is Berkshire Hunt. Oh, yeah, I see. Well, that's had a little bit of a dilution over time, hasn't it? So Burke is uh, originally, in its undiluted form, slightly more serious. I see. I see. Well, well. So yeah, but so Margaret's been so caught up in that she hasn't been having the relationship we she had with Verence before, and admittedly, the relationship she we, she had with Verence before was some awkward conversations. Mm. Well, she sort of roughly twined some flowers in her hair and things. But they did seem to enjoy them, at least. But they enjoyed that, and they've sort of lost that in this, ah, well, we live in the castle and we're getting married and we're royalty now. Yeah, yeah. So I do, I have some sympathy for her in this section, and I respect her decision to storm out in her wedding dress, because <laughs> aesthetic. Obviously. And I like and her sort tried of... on, obviously. Oh, obviously. But I also like her sort of looking at Damanda and thinking she couldn't wait for her to wake up so she could envy her properly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which actually sort of jumping ahead in the list of characters, but getting to Verence and their relationship. Yeah. A, the bit where she realises he's been sleeping in front of his door. Oh, it was so sweet. Oh, so sweet. I thought that was really lovely and such. Like, he doesn't get a lot of, like, there's not a lot of time spent on him as a character in this compared to Weird Sisters. But there's so many little yeah. details that build up to who he is now that it's just really good writing. Yeah. And there is one sentence that I nearly just had this as my quote, which is just the veil had silk flowers on the headband when it's talking about Margaret's wedding dress. Because, oh. of course, Verence has had it all designed. Oh. And he's put flowers on the veil because she'd always attempt to wistfully braid flowers into her hair. That's very sweet. So, yes, I thought we could have a brief bit of emotion there before we talk about elves. I don't think I've ever tried to braid flowers into my hair. Oh, I've definitely done throwing in daisies while I've idly sat around in the park on an afternoon. You've got grip. You've got grip in your hair. It's curly. Mine, I think it would just fall out of mine. Oh, yeah, I've got incredibly thick hair. I'll make you a daisy chain tiara at some point when we're lingering in a park. Oh, that sounds nice. Thank you. Um, right. What are we on? Mm. Elves. 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 Joanna. Elves. Elves. All right. We should probably stop saying that. What, just in case they turn up? Well, you never know. I put some salt on the doorstep before we started recording. Oh, sweet. We'll find them. Yeah. I planned ahead. And on the webcam, obviously, so they can't get through to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how that works, right? That explains right? the picture quality, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good look for me. Aesthetically crystallised. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, elves um, are Here. Here. There are antagonists. <laughs> they had state. No, they are terrifying. Kind of revealed to be odd little creatures who project glamour rather than beautiful fae Lord yeah. of the Rings elves. There's uh, a description of the look in their eyes, and this is when Granny and Diamanda are in um, Elfland, and Diamanda realizes when you look in your eyes, you get this impression that you have no value, mm. you are nothing to them. And whether you're pet or prey, it is not up to you. Yes. And that was quite a chilling section. I thought it was really well written. Yeah, it's interesting that they consider themselves definitely the superior species, considering they're in the parasite universe. And the and although obviously they are stronger and cunning and things, not necessarily. Yeah, they're a strange one. But I like the sort of creeping horror built up around them. And when we see mm. them in the next section, get into our world, we can kind of see where some of the arrogance comes from because they prove themselves to be somewhat powerful. Yeah, for sure. But I did look into the elves are marvellous. They create marvels. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I looked into some of the etymology behind it. I mostly looked at uh, the terror terrific one because the rest of them, it, it's quite a logical step from marvel to marvellous or glamour to glamorous. Mm -hmm. But obviously terror is not the same thing as terrific. So the root of it is the Indo-European tears or trays, which means to shake. Okay. That's where it got into the English language as a reaction to fear, like a human shaking in fear. Okay. So that's where we get terror. And it kept being used as something awful or something that provoked that reaction in a human, something that would make a human shake. By the 18th century, it shifted to sort of meaning huge... Is it something that creates that? 
Oh, yeah, that makes sense. If you read old literature, that's kind of used like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, A terrific noise kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. so it didn't really start being used as a positive thing, terrific being a good thing, uh, until about the 19th century. So quite late, really. Terrific as a positive thing is fairly newish in linguistic terms. Yeah. I guess that makes sense because one could still say something like, and there came a terrific roar, and although it would sound old-fashioned, you would know they meant huge rather than good. Oh, isn't that great? What a great roar. Well done, Mr. Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't eat me. <laughs> Superb. <laughs> Marvellous, Mr. Tiger. Um, and this, yeah, this is this semantic change, semantic shift, which mm. is a term you reminded me to look up, but you may have learned from me, apparently. Yeah, I, I think a lot of our knowledge is kind of this. I don't <laughs> we sort of have Hopefully one... one of us remembers or has it written down somewhere, but who knows where, who learned it first, yeah. Between us, we have one brain cell, and I'm not sure who's using it. I think you're using it today. I had to build this desk, you see, so yes. thanks for the exclusive use of it this morning. <laughs> um, and this led me to something you uh, were talking about as well, which is an old apocryphal-ish story uh, about St. Paul's Cathedral being described as amusing, awful, and artificial. Go on, explain it in the old terms. Uh, so awful meant creating a sense of awe. Awe-inspiring kind of thing. Okay. Exactly. And artificial was sort of, well done, very arty. Yeah, it's it's, it's artifice. Yeah. It's, it is. Artificial, I suppose, only would have come as a as an insult when we kind of had the resurgence of natural is good. I'll link to an article about it in the show notes. I found quite an interesting one and something about more of the origins of terrific as well. The main source for this sort of apocryphal story is something Charles II, so this would be mid-17th century, wrote about the construction of St Paul's Cathedral where he used the term artificial. Okay, cool. And possibly awful as well, but in two separate paragraphs. It was never like one sentence of of amusing, awful, and okay. artificial. So it's been condensed for de- demonstrative purposes. Yeah, and attributed to many, many different monarchs throughout history. Yeah. But the most evidence is for Charles II. Hmm. But yes, that's a fun example of semantic shift. I like that. Yes. I'm wildly off topic for us. They're back on topic. Red Cully. Red Cully. I, I enjoy Red Cully getting annoyed at Quantum because I find it very relatable. <laughs> I feel like I've d- dived too deep into this dislike of Quantum. I actually don't hate Quantum Physics. No, I mean, it's just it's just, it's just baffling. It's one of those things where you have it explained to you and you're like, I, get, I, I understand it for this minute as you explain it to me, Mr. Good at Science person. But I know if I try and explain it to anyone else within three minutes, it just won't stick. And yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw that little bit of quantum particles, subatomic particles, wasn't it, with the weird directions and everything? And yes, it is. It is here that the psalm, hitherto believed to be the smallest particle of magic, was successfully demonstrated to be made up of resons or reality fragments. Currently, research indicates that each reson is it itself made up of a combination of at least five flavours known as up, down, sideways, sex appeal and peppermint. <laughs> Red is just sort of furious about the whole thing. It's like, Could you stop mm. proving things like this? It's not necessary. Yes. <laughs> Marvellous. Listen to my reminiscence. <laughs> Marvellous. Hooray. Here comes another quantum. <laughs> and uh, Schrodinger's cat reference as well. There's this cat they've discovered that if you can put it in a box, it's dead and alive at the same time. Very cruel. But we also get sort of a bit of a callback moment uh, as well as just a description and i'm pretty sure in reaper man i already gave rid cully's hat its own section so i haven't here but rid cully has got an excellent hat that has cupboards and surprises and telescopic legs so it can make a little tent that's all the best hats do you um but we also get a reference to the previous arch chancellor's hat which mm. picked up two magical vibrations after spending so much time on wizardly heads and developed personality of its own. Oh, good. Recalling the events of sorcery. Yes, gosh, that's a callback. So, yeah, I think that's all I have for characters. Good. Uh, locations. Yes, we don't actually really go anywhere new, but there's some funny bits, including the joke about putting something where the sun doesn't shine. Yes. That valley over in Slice where uh, the monkey keeps his nut. <laughs> Very innocent, one of the rude artisans or whatever they're called. Rude mechanicals. The rude mechanicals, which is 
the main Shakespeare reference of the bit. That's what they're called in the Midsummer Night's Dream as well. Uh-huh. Because uh, I once went to an amazing production of it where they had done a touring production and in each town they had a different Amdram group come in and be the Reed Mechanicals mm. in the performance. This is Royal Shakespeare Company. So I saw it in Stratford-upon-Avon and they had these different Amdram groups all come down and do two or three performances at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It was great. Oh. That sounds horrible. I'm sure you loved it. (laughs) (laughs) They were really good. If I hadn't known that they were an Amdram group coming in with professional actors, I probably wouldn't have noticed the difference. Well, you know, I I wouldn't go and see that either way. But uh, yes, (laughs) (laughs) for you, that sounds fantastic. It was. So yeah, so that bit made me giggle. That's that's another one of those things that becomes a bit of a running joke. Uh, There's a bit I nearly missed. And I only re- found this reference because I was looking at the folklore of Discworld. Oh, the middle path. Yes, the middle path. Ah, I didn't look it up. I did. I saw it and I was like, oh, I bet that's a reference. I'm glad you looked at it. And this is so, so I, after I'd done this whole episode plan and looked at the folklore of Discworld and put it all together, I thought, I'll just check Hellspace for things I've missed. <laughs> just look behind the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> there is, this is so full of references, especially to folk songs and I'm not going to go I know, through. That's why I didn't even look at Elspace. I was like, I'm just going to drown myself in obscure references. I'll just, you know, pick one that I notice. So there are three paths. One can tell the truth. One can only lie. <laughs> if you stab the middle path. One's got a tiger behind the door. <laughs> uh, so it's all briars and thorns one way. It's all winding the other way. And the mm-hmm. middle road is sort of overgrown. It had a green, rich, dark feel to it, suggested by the word bosky, i.e. having a lot of bosk. <laughs> yeah, cheers, Pratchett. <laughs> I looked it up, bosky is a real word, and bosk comes from the Old English for bush. So it does literally okay. mean like an overgrown path. Cool, cool. Uh, but the whole thing with the three paths is from the Ballad of Thomas the Rhymer. Oh, well, that's something that Steel Ice Band did. Yes, they did. I've got that on my Spotify somewhere. I've, I think I've got it on mine, Apple Music. Uh, so the, it tells the story of Thomas seeing the Queen of Elves and uh, he sort of, they go riding. They they find these three paths yeah. and the one overgrown with thorn and briars is the Christian path of righteousness. Oh. The broad path through flowery meadows is the path of wickedness. Oh. And then the third path, uh, and see not, yon bonny road that winds about the ferny bray that is the road to fair elf land where thou and i this night may go so we've got to go down the thorny path if we uh, want to not end up in elf land or hell yeah but i don't know if i want to walk the christian path of righteousness I mean, I've, I've got those pocket secretaires but <laughs> oh i just don't want to hang out with that many like righteous christians yeah yeah let's take the winding road that's always the most fun <laughs> I'll take the road less travelled. Christian symbology, bloody holier than thou, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. think, think of a synonym of that for me, please, John. <laughs> Christian symbology just thinks it's better than all the other symbology. Mm. Uh, castle. The castle has uh, rooms. Yeah, it does. Several. <laughs> uh, many. Lots. Uh, <laughs> Francine is uh, definitely more than three. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I just like the way it was kind of described as this big, rambling, lots of shut-up places full of, you know, the furniture you're never going to ask for on the register. And then uh, nearer the end of this section, it was described as it had the feel of one of those rooms where you go in and it's still got the thumbtack holes in the wall from the last lot of students who lived here. It's like, <laughs> you know the feel of that building, don't you? So that was a good little relatable moment. Even for us, we've never been to university. We know we know that kind of long-term tenancy feel of a place we've we've both lived in the shitty house shares yeah or in your case you spent 90 percent of your time on the sofa of my shitty house share <laughs> that was a good year very comfy sofa that was an excellent sofa uh yeah that bit did make me giggle and then one last thing we do get a little reference and i don't think it's the first time this has been referenced but on the map it says here be dragons in this case the street map of ank Morpork. Uh, where it says here be dragons this is the sunshine home for sick dragons in Morfolk Street isn't that nice I'm just glad that there is a nice little home for sick dragons yes because we know who in Morpork Ank Morpork likes dragons we do we do good old Vimes and his loves (laughs) oh right yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh we get to talk about Sybil again soon is that next visit Men at Arms 
Yeah. We're doing that next month now, aren't we? Because the watch doesn't have a release date. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Loving the mid-episode admin. It's fine. Our listeners, only the committed ones now, will know what we're doing <laughs> next month. <laughs> That's how it should be. <laughs> we're going to be like those really irritating job ads that put like a password in the middle of the description. They say, make sure you include this so we know you've read <laughs> None of this is even slightly relatable to me. I, have, I don't look at job ads. No, you don't. That makes me sound really smug. Chefs don't find jobs like no. on the internet. We know someone who runs a kitchen and... Everyone needs chefs, so... Yeah. Well, you know, until the... Robots take... fatality industry just collapsed over the last year, but... <laughs> anyway... Anyway, sorry. I'm doing a good job of cheering you up. So... <laughs> Should we do a quick break before... Gosh, your sector's in ruins. <laughs> And that's why Trisha makes you fret. It'll be coming to an OnlyFans near you soon. <laughs> so on Little Bits, uh, Power of Belief, Evil Edition, mm-hmm. because it is a truth universally acknowledged that if the Power of Belief is mentioned in a Pratchett book, I need to talk about it. Sure, sure. Well, I like here this whole idea of the sort of motivation of the elves. What mm-hmm. they want from us most of all is our belief. And obviously yes. we've just had that theme running through all of Small Gods, but what Om wants most in Small Gods is people's belief to keep him alive, but he is not an antagonist. Whereas yeah. here, the elves are very much antagonists. They are evil bastards, but they, their basic want is the same as Om's. They want to be believed in. The belief kind of thins the barrier between the world or makes them more powerful and able to cross. I'm not entirely yeah, I think clear on which it is. They need to be believed in to be able to get out of their parasite universe and into the main universe okay. and never. Their Parasite Universe doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant place to be. No, a bit chilly. Plus, not as much to chase and hunt, considering that seems to be their favourite pastime. So I don't have big thoughts on that, but I couldn't let it go past without pointing it out, especially as we've got the evil version of it. This is the way it is. It is not a good or a bad thing. This is how it is, and here is a bad thing doing it. Yep. Yes. And sometimes it is good, and sometimes it is a not so good. Hmm. That Terry Pratchett. <laughs> Bit clever, wasn't what a he? thinker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I quite liked the inability to describe a hangover properly because I completely agree. Oh, yeah, they're never described well. Terry Pratchett kind of pointedly says nobody can write the feeling of a hangover. And honestly, it's just a bit bizarre when people try. They use things like dancing elephants, red hot curried marbles for eyes. It's like, oh, no, you just feel shit, don't you? I mean, that's how you say like, yeah. If you've had a hangover, you know what I mean. If you haven't, there's no point trying to imagine it. Yeah. Unless, like, you said, big car six, quite like it, I suppose. That's yeah, it's just... like a queasy, headachey existential crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got an irrelevant and... elephant fact while we've got uh, dancing elephants? Uh, oh, shit, no, I didn't think about that. Uh... Oh, elephants' feet are kind of weirdly tiptoe-ish, like the the skeleton in the foot. So it ah. looks all like flat or whatever, but it's kind of little ballerina feet up there. I'll, oh. I'll put a, this is really good visual content for our audio podcast. That's relevant because we've got dancing elephants here, and I sort of like the idea that elephants are quietly all going around on point. There we go. Look at us go. Was there another one for me? There was. Oh, there yeah. There was. Nanny talking bit. through the door. Nanny talking through the door at Magra endeared me to Nanny very much. Uh, not that I wasn't already endeared. But I was going to say, she's already pretty it, much Were it possible to endear me further, I was further endeared. She, it's a really sweet scene. It is a very sweet scene. She was kind of, first of all, kind of like chivying Magra along. Like, oh, we'll have the weasel down the trousers kind of thing. And then what kind of surprised me slightly and delighted me was the oh you know you can just go back to live with your cottage live in your cottage or stay with me like these are all options you don't have to go and get married just want you to know that yeah Um, i really loved that moment yeah and i guess like nobody else had said that to her and to me that that would have been the moment where margaret finally kind of came out but obviously that wouldn't work for the plot but yeah uh, yes the first time someone went you know there's this is still your choice. Like you can just come and stay with me and deal with the tin bath. But yeah, well, Magret's sort of been very, very swept along by Verence and his lack of proposal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't think anyone has bothered to say to her, "You don't have to," and you don't have yeah. to do this out of pride. Because part of the reason she says, "Well, I'm going to go and be queen and live in the castle," yeah. is because of her falling out with Granny. 
when you when you look at it as an outsider, bizarre that you'd like choose your whole life based on a bickering with a friend. But you can kind of imagine in the moment like the unthinkableness of going back. Yeah. While tempers were still hot and as an incredibly stubborn and prideful person, absolutely. Which is, of course, why you live in that dusty old castle with the uh, <laughs> wet blanket of a king. Orcs. Orcs are mercy. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, parallels to previous books. This is something I said I would keep an eye on as we go through, like especially this section of 10 or so. Mm. Uh, the scene with Granny and Ridcully, where they're sort of going for their late night walk, midnight swim, realising they knew each other, or talking about the fact they used to know each other, yeah. uh, is like an updated sort of parallel version of uh, the boat scene in Equal Rights when Granny is with, and I can't remember the name of that Aunt Chancellor. Uh, was it Wazy Goose? No, that was the <clears throat> old one. He was called... It was after not coming to me, but I know what you mean. Yeah, But I enjoyed that we sort of get, just like there were some moments in Small Gods that were very much reworking Cut angle. some ideas from Pyramids. Cut Angle, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, no, that would have bugged both of us. Uh, that we get this kind of rehash of a scene here, and there's there's not a lot here that's hugely paralleled. And I've decided to do Weird Sisters, but better. We've got the parallel of the Shakespeare parody and the relationship between Granny and Magra, and Magra storming off and not being included as much. Uh, but that was the most sort of direct scene for scene moment that really reminded me because you even have the thing with Granny and Cut Angle where they realise they probably knew each other. Way yeah. back when in the wilds of Lanka. Yes, yeah, definitely. That was the him picking up on his previous half thoughts thread, wasn't it? Yeah. And I like this pairing of Granny and Ridcully, not as obviously, you know, I want them to end up together or anything. But they are although they're very different, Granny is very not quiet, but you know what I mean? She's quite reserved. Yeah, and yeah, Rid- reserved is the word, yeah. Yeah, and Ridcully is very loud and boisterous, but they're two of the most incredibly powerful and impactful characters. Everything Granny th- Granny does has an impact and impacts the people around her. She is just naturally at the centre of stories. And I think both of them have a power that isn't immediately apparent because of their personalities as well. Yeah, Granny has the ability to be very passionate and Ridcully has the ability to be very quietly clever. On uh, sort of discrepancies in timelines and things, because lots of people pointed out, you know, this is midsummer and Nanny's having her bath, but there's another reference in a different book to her having a bath in autumn. Oh, uh, that her annual bath. The, that terrible discrepancy. <laughs> I'm very angry. No, there's um, a quote from Terry Pratchett when people point these things out to him. Uh, there are no inconsistencies, but occasionally there are there are alternate pasts, which is a nice way to think about these things that don't add up, like the fact that Granny knew two arch chancellors because they both used to run about. Yeah, I saw a kind of a parallel when they were talking, when Granny Weatherwax was basically properly having a go at Diamanda. Yeah. I was talking about how kind of the power that the elf queen would have given Diamanda would have felt amazing at first and then slowly had to pay more and more for less and less of a thing. And like it was clearly a parallel to drugs of it, like a. Yeah, like an addiction. kind of high and a yeah, slow feeling from that. And I quite like that building on previous passages on how magic was like a drug and i think of rincewind wasn't it i'm trying to think of rincewind who kind of got a high off his magic when he had the the hat the dean i think had a similar i like that he keeps that thread running through so going on to the bigger stuff yes let's talk about the fae we've already talked about the elves a bit but the actual sort of folklore origins in this i like i like that it's kind of like a psa format (laughs) all right kids we've had our fun today but now it's time to talk about the fairy folk (laughs) First of all, turn around three times after you speak about them. Yeah, I didn't get as far as that one uh, as to why, but that seems like it, it ties in with a lot of the... It's lots of old traditions. Uh, I didn't... Turning around. <laughs> it just seems like something to do, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> throwing salt over your shoulders, another one, and that's because yeah. you're throwing it in the eyes of the devil. The all-powerful devil can be easily foiled by a little bit of seasoning in the eyes. Uh, well, it's very well known that the devil likes rather bland food. That's what makes him so evil. He doesn't even season his pasta water. Gross, dude. <laughs> Hell is just badly seasoned pasta. <laughs> oh, my God. So, obviously, in this book, Pratchett picks up on a round world 
phenomenon that he is rather enamoured with, which is the fact that fey folk, elves included, used to be considered very dangerous, very evil, very keep them away from your door. And due to the influence of various literary figures, Shakespeare included, one must mm. add, uh, became something else entirely mischievous at worst, beautiful fey. Now, see, even fey, the word fey kind of means... It has a positive connotation now, doesn't it? Whereas yeah, that would not have always been the case. And it got that way through. And I think we've talked about this a very long time ago on this podcast, but uh, Victorian literature, of course, had its part in this terrible descent into misinformation. Yep, misinformation about the fair folk. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> Tinkerbell, actually. No, do you want to tink- Tinkerbell's a decent, at least, representation of someone who is clearly not morally driven. Yes, Tinkerbell's priorities are not really based around morality. She's always very sweet, but she is a murderous little menace. Uh, I like her. I also need applause to live. And then, of course, you've got Tolkien with his beautiful tall, who live forever and are wise and beautiful and whatever, uh, which I think put the non-ferric nail in the coffin. Um, <laughs> Excellent use of ferret, That is a by general. Thank you. <laughs> that, is a, that is a general overview of what it was. And then we both had a kind of look into the the, folk the reasons behind some of the traditions that he mentioned in here. And I think you had a look at horseshoes, didn't you? Yeah, I looked at the origins of horseshoe superstitions hmm. because I was quite curious about that anyway, to be fair. There's a really interesting little section I found from the uh, Journal of American Folklore. Oh, I like that. I yes. like that journal. That is bookmarked in my permanent podcast yeah. bookmark folder. So this is a late 19th century publication, and I found an article from that about the folklore of the horseshoe, which goes through a lot of the different ideas of where it could have come from. Because no one's exactly sure because it's been around so long and there's sort of lots of different variations on it. Sometimes it is just iron, sometimes it's very specifically a horseshoe, and the fact it's a horseshoe is more important than the fact that it's iron. Oh, Okay. Uh, there's theories to do with the shape of it. So one of the ideas of the origin is uh, a connection with the Jewish holiday of Passover uh, and to do with the blood sprinkled on doorposts and just being iron being a representation of it, but also the arch shape. And that okay. is a huge rabbit hole I plan on going down in my own time of um, the symbolism of the arch in various bits of folklore because it turns out there's Ooh, a I've lot. Oh, I've got some bookmarks for you on that, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Because there was also a practice in Scotland of um, putting rowan trees in an arch over the door and it was a similar idea of warding off evil. You can go back to your terrible folk dancing as well there. Oh, yep. We won't go back to my terrible folk dancing. No one needs to imagine <laughs> Do that. Do we have a video of that anyway, Joanna? I think no. The public needs no, to know. Right. there is no Fine. video. <laughs> There's also some theories that Not it's... anymore. I can see a smouldering pile behind you. <laughs> There's some theories about it being connected to um, primitive serpent worship. Rude. Nothing primitive about serpent worship. <laughs> Inspiration from the... Good to worship target as anything. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I'll worship serpent. It could be something to do with the moon and similar no, shapes. It's always to do with the moon. It's always to do with the fucking moon. Uh, my favourite bit of this article, I'm obviously not going to read the whole article out, but I will link to it in the show notes. This is obviously written by someone who's quite stayed and sensible. Number four, a phallic emblem. It must suffice to mention this theory of the origin of the superstitious use of the horseshoe. The evidence in its favour is meagre, resting chiefly upon the employment of amulets of this character. And I will say no more about it. <laughs> oh, you imagine it's what's-his-chops from Gilmore Girls. Uh... <laughs> oh, Taylor Dosey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> the evidence is meagre, we will say no more about it. We don't think the horseshoe superstition has anything to do with dick jokes, but it could... If it does apply to you, please do go to the doctor. <laughs> it should not look like that. <laughs> uh, it could have something to do with the fact it's shaped like prongs, like the prongs of a devil's horn. <gasps> they're they're devil, throwing the horns the... again. Yay, we're back. Uh, there's lots of ideas about the horse itself being sacred. Oh, I'm with Red Cully on the horses. <laughs> they're not sacred. I love horses, but they're not sacred. That is two inches of brain on six foot of beast. Exactly so. They are giant dumbasses. There's also these, uh, the, this idea that it protects against the entrance of well, witches as well and evil spirits, but it has, yeah. to be the, it has to be the right way up. Ah, which is the right way up? 
Uh, so um, visual content on a podcast. So the round bit is... Curvy side down or up? Curvy side down, pointed up. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Because uh, I used to be a big folklore and superstition geek when I was a bit younger. Yeah, we both got a shelf. And I had quite a few horseshoe necklaces because I also was a bit of a horse girl. Uh, <laughs> what a combination. John Pleasant Hagstones. <laughs> <laughs> But they are always that way up uh, because, you know, the, the idea is that the horseshoe is lucky. There's a lot of old Irish traditions around it as well. And obviously that then goes into racing, which is how I was kind of a horse girl. Much easier to put on a pendant as well. Well, yeah, handily, much easier to put on a pendant. But I was always taught if it's upside down, the luck drains out. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And then it needs to be up like a <laughs> up like a bowl to hold the luck in. Of, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much the same physical properties as water, of course. Yes, yes, very much so. Luck is a kind of viscous liquid, isn't it? But, but it is definitely a liquid and not a gas. Yeah, yeah. The degree of luck pertaining to a horseshoe found by chance is thought to depend on the number of nails remaining in it. Oh, Jesus Christ, all right. So if We're going to do... have to have a handbook printed out, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've ever played horseshoes, it's better to play with horseshoes that don't still have nails in. Yes, for safety reasons. <laughs> Have you ever played horseshoes at a fair? I have that- not played horseshoes at a fair. I did note down the various fair games that were mentioned here at the marriage party. Yes. Uh, but decided not to go down there because it's nonsense and the greasy pole with Nanny. and <laughs> There are some... Origi- You're already I- on the verge of hysteria. I didn't really need to conjure that <laughs> image in your mind, which I've now done anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I started going down the same rabbit hole and came to the same conclusion. There's a lot of nonsense here and we don't need to hear me read out exactly what a brand tub is. I think our first Patreon uh, rabbit hole thing might end up being a few of these unexplored lords and ladies ones. Yes, I think it might be. I love that you're cheeky hint at the Patreon there, Francie. Foreshadowing, mate, uh, or ah. whatever the whatever the equivalent is for marketing. I, should, I, I think should know. Kind of we can still call that. <laughs> so, was there anything you found out about uh, folklore traditions and what have you? Yeah, uh, I took the path less travelled, maybe the windier path, the briar path, whichever one does not take me to heaven, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and looked up iron instead of horseshoes. Excellent. Uh, because, yes, I looked up the idea that iron was the main thing and that, as Pratchett decided, was the case in the disc world. It was just the most common form of iron you likely see lying around with a horseshoe. Yeah. Um, so, like, why iron? Why is iron? It goes hundreds of years back in many cultures as a superstitious material. Uh, you would use it to ward off evil. You would bury an iron knife in front of a door to keep witches out, for instance, uh, as an alternative to the horseshoe, I imagine, in different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um and there are some various theories, and again, I found some nice articles I'll link, but it's probably because it had properties that might have seen magical once upon a time. Uh, so the biggest dramaticist, most dramatic. Uh, <laughs> dramaticist should have a proper word instead of having to say most dramatic because yeah. it get, takes away from the drama. Um, and rarest would have been iron ore came from the sky sometimes. Uh, oh, yeah. Came from pieces. Um well, that's where the it, the stones came from, didn't it? Exactly so. Yes, magnets, yes. Uh, an iron needle in water would would have served as a compass a long time before we could explain why. Like, yep. kind of seemed magic. Um, iron conducts electricity it, it, and it creates strong, complex weapons of the sort we just couldn't have when we were bronze or copper or whatever we were using, um, yeah. which, which I can see how that would root one in reality in opposition to the kind of fey nonsense yeah iron is something strong and solid and very human yeah yeah oh look i've got a loose thread on my job that's a big one sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then i had a quick look at some of the other things mentioned uh leaving the milk out i kind of knew this already the main one is leaving it out for brownies yeah uh brownies being the little imps that would at some point, at least in history, come in and do your chores. I don't know if they were perhaps a little bit more mischievous before. Yeah, this comes. Uh, uh, this is old Cornish tr- folklore traditions, isn't uh, it? Cornish, yes, yes, quite right. Uh, Neil Gaiman went into it, didn't he? And um, one of his somethings. There is is my favourite part of American bo- Gods, and it is the story of Essie Tregowan. Yes. Tregowan. Yes, the, the Irish lassie. Who no, she's Cornish. Cornish. Shit, sorry. But well, yeah, there's a lot of a, yeah. There's a lot of overlap <laughs> between Cornish and Irish traditions. 
being the last strongholds of some yeah older culture yeah yeah that makes sense um that's cool the other bits that kind of have a bit of grounding in folkloric reality if that's not a oxymoron um <laughs> is the change in kind of perception of time is definitely yeah. one you know they were worrying about waking up in the wrong century definitely lots of stories particularly i found some in scotland and ireland about being taken by the fairies and coming back a hundred years later and everyone's like who the hell are you and you're like who the hell are you and they're like where's my wife? The century of the fruit bat and you're like oh no i was in the century of the anchovy uh, <laughs> paraphrase thank you for not trying a scottish accent yeah. and then the last thing i found before mm. i had to come and do this an hour late was uh elf shot oh yeah elf shot is a medical condition described in Anglo-Saxon texts. Um, notably, oddly enough, I can't pronounce Anglo-Saxon text, uh, so I'm going to call it Weofairstis. Excellent. I'm sure that's wrong. And believed to be caused by invisible elves shooting invisible arrows at a personal animal, causing ah. sudden shooting pains localised to a particular area of the body. Modern diagnoses might include uh, arthritis or cramps. Ah. Um, yeah. So that was in Scandinavian and Scottish culture later than it was elsewhere, but it was throughout Anglo-Saxon culture. And yeah. Interesting. You can cure it with various things, but as well as treating the symptom, one would try and treat the cause by eliminating elves from one's immediate vicinity. As is always wise. Always. Especially if you are hurting. (laughs) Always eliminate the elves from your immediate vicinity. Yes, that's why I'm emotionally up and down this week. Elves. Elves. How much iron have you got in the house? No, yeah, probably not enough. Mm, you've got cast iron pans. Stay in the I kitchen, do. you'll be fine. I mean, that's in a emotionally healthy way, not a sexist way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Before we go on to the next topic, my battery's uh, dying. Yeah. I just need to grab a charger. Listeners are tragically deprived of the sight of Joanna vaulting a sofa. <laughs> it's the only like way to get in and out of the fort. <laughs> You can release that video at some point, but can you do it on a week where I'm slightly more graceful than today? Sure, sure. Because <laughs> it's not always quite this bad. Sometimes I do it quite stylishly. I'll give you a heads up and you can do the landing with the... Uh... Landing on the cross legs. <laughs> <laughs> I can come in from the side and kind of do a diving roll. Hmm. Spy style. <laughs> right, God, sorry, we're making a podcast, aren't we? In theory, yes. In reality... Well, building in the nature of witchcraft, Joanna, was the second talking point. Indeed. And this is a combination of my favourite things. Witchcraft, world building and rules for all magic. (laughs) Let me come back to you with the rest of that. (laughs) A, I like when the books talk about the nature of magic and stuff, because my two favourite ways for magic to be presented in a fantasy book are either with a lot of very strict rules or no rules really whatsoever. A bit of consistency in your nonsense. Uh, Yeah, I either want it to be all nonsense or something like Name of the Wind where there's 18 million different rules, all of which get blown out of the water when he meets one of the fairies. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? Well, Fairies. Should have had a horseshoe. Should have had a horseshoe, Quoth. Honestly, Quoth, what are you doing? Uh, so I like this moment where the girls turn up on the doorstep and they want to be taught witching. Yeah. A, because it, it's we've had insights into this before, but insights of how one becomes a witch, especially in this area, which has a very, very solid witching tradition. Yes. You have the smaller covens and the larger coven meetings that we've seen in, say, Weird Sisters and Equal Rights. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and the beginning of Witches Abroad. But you also have how do younger girls become witches? How do they get mm. trained up? And and it's that they approach older witches. And um, Granny's way of sending them away is how do you destroy this hat? Yeah, or knock the hat off the head. Knock yeah. the hat off the head, and Nanny does it with a stick. And it's this uh, this thing that comes up again and again in the witches' books is the magic of not doing magic. But it's the fact that when the the girls aren't satisfied with this, Granny then points out, it's like, okay, you can blow a hat up with magic and does it to Nanny's hat. Yeah. Whole picture yeah, of that costume. I'm awesome and cool and magical. <laughs> However, that, maybe learn how to think a bit before I teach you the explosions. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking, then explosions. Excellent teaching methods from Granny Weatherworks. Exactly. But that she also she, talks. She's to... taught esque before, and it kind of went a bit pear shaped. So I can see why she's. 
in her defense, Esk wasn't exactly full witch because she had all that wizardy nonsense. She did, she did. What with being the seventh daughter of a seventh son and what have you. But you also have them talking about being chosen. So there's this idea that witches kind of select from a pool of candidates and go, you, you're going to be trained up, you're going to be a witch. And that's what happened to Nanny. And isn't what happened to Granny. Granny went and camped out on someone's doorstep until she was chosen. And we've got more detail about the witches' cottages as well, the idea that they're these sort of hereditary things. They don't belong to an individual witch. They belong to like a chain of witches. Yeah, which is nice because it kind of ties in with the idea of the narrative consistency as well. So there is always a mother maiden crone and there is always a research witch and a goat witch and a mother witch. And a- Yeah. And there's and um, Margaret's old cottage is very much a cottage of research witches. They're the witches that know eye of witch newt. Yes. <laughs> and the nice witch line. Basking that- ravine shark. <laughs> Granny was a better witch because she knows that it doesn't really matter, but Margaret's a better doctor because she thinks it does. Yes. And I like that Margaret gets a moment to be incredibly competent in this sixth section. It's where a lot of the book sort of makes fun of Margaret a bit yeah. for being a bit of a wet hen and not really standing up for herself and thinking that elves are nice. Yeah. She does get a moment where even Granny acknowledges she is the best person for this job and she gets to yeah. be the best person for the job. Although Granny does have to kind of shout her down from trying to continue the pettiness. Like, no, come on, this is important. We're not yeah. bickering now. Do you want to help or not? Because if not, I'm just going to go and find someone who will. We literally don't have time for this shit. Yeah. She <laughs> does need a like, moment. Okay, but when she does roll up her sleeves and get stuck in, she very yeah. much rolls up her sleeves and gets stuck in. Yeah. And I, I, like I said, I mostly just, I enjoy this as world building because we're slowly getting more and more about the inner workings of the society. And it's kind of the opposite from the wizards where we had a lot of the courtly intrigue of wizards and then it faded off into, we don't really need that now. Ridcully's in charge. The rest of them yeah. have jobs and they muck about together. And if Ridcully says, do this, they will argue. Yeah. <laughs> but they will probably at least listen to him. But witches, we sort of have the opposite. We haven't had much of how it all works and we're slowly getting more of it and we'll get more and more as we uh, revisit the witches. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of world building that's very exciting for me because I like knowing these sort of details. I like knowing how this world works. Yeah. So that's fun. And of course, we've also got the whole what is magic section and we talked about the wizard's getting excited about particles and quantum and yeah raisons which does literally mean thingies yeah and based which on... is more, having more of just a feel for it yeah uh but i do like if a trained mind rigid with quantum certainty was inserted in the crack and twisted mm. and this is the idea of that there are so many possibilities which is a basically picking a possibility and going for it yeah such as the version of the world where that has exploded yes into more complex things whereas younger witches like uh crystals mystic forces and dancing around without your drawers on yes and it might be that all of these are true maybe so maybe so but yes so that's a that's a fun thing for me that's a fun book thing that i enjoyed yes i made a small note that the idea of not giving the hair the milk after borrowing it uh, or borrowing its body would be unthinkable to a witch. Um, and if you really wanted to piss off a witch, you would do a favour that they couldn't repay and it would be as irritating as a hangnail. Yes. And I thought that tied into your favourite quote from last week about the, the unsaid obligation. Yes. The absence of demand was an obligation. Yes, that one. So, Francine, do you have an obscure reference finial for me? I do, I do, I do. Um, the idea of a poet laureate... Uh, was floated and uh, for some reason floated towards Nanny Og by Verence. Well, she is very poetic. No better. Uh, <laughs> one one would think knew better by now, but apparently not. And uh, the the throwaway line in there was, oh, yeah, and they get paid a sack of butt or a butt of sack or something like that. I was like, <laughs> hmm? So I looked that up and, yeah, that is the thing. Uh the poet laureate was given a small stipend by the monarch and a butt or barrel of sherry, ah. which was called sack. Oh. That began back in 1630 for Ben Johnson, who wrote poetry for kings but never had a formal appointment. And then the first official poet laureate, who I think soon after was soon afterwards, um, also got it. And then 
The custom died out in about 1800 and then was revived in 1984 by the sherry producers of Spain, who knew a marketing opportunity when they found one in an obscure history book. Uh, <laughs> and they now present a butt of sherry, which I must say is equivalent to over 700 bottles of sherry. Jesus. Uh, so it's a rather large barrel uh, to the Poet Laureate. Well, I've got a new uh, reason to try and become Poet Laureate. I don't even oh. really like sherry, to be fair. Head around Caroline Duffy's house to see if she's still got some left. <laughs> I'll drop her a text. We're on first name terms. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it irks the monarchy a bit that it's they, they go to Spain to receive the sherry, so it's uh, <laughs> the Spanish now giving out the sherry. If I was to become Poet Laureate, I'd be more excited about getting the barrel of sherry than I would about like meeting royalty and being named Poet Laureate. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's because I'm an alcoholic or a Republican. <laughs> Republican, to be clear to our American listeners, means in this case, not a monarchist. It does not mean a right-wing American. <laughs> yeah, I probably should clarify that. <laughs> the English sort of Republican, which is very yes. different from the American sort. Well, I think that's, as we've gone wildly off topic again, that's probably yeah. all we can say about uh, part two of Lords and Ladies. That is literally mm-hmm. anything anyone could ever say. Yep. Nothing else to be said. Don't at me. <laughs> At me, it's fine. I don't care. Do uh, at us. Do at us. At. Thank you for uh, listening. And. Oh, all right, fine. <laughs> thank you for listening to the True Shall Make You Fret. And if you would like to at us, you can find us on Instagram at the True Shall Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod. You can find us on Facebook at the True Shall Make You Fret. You can join our subreddit, r slash ttsmyf. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, albatrosses, and snacks that truth shall make ye fret pod at gmail.com. Please remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Please tell other people about us if you think they'd like us. And in the meantime, dear listener, don't let us detain you. Hello and welcome to the True Shall Make Key Fret, a podcast in which we're reading and recapping every book by Terry from Terry. Ah, fuck. Jesus. All right, I'll try that again, shall I? Yeah, if you like. <laughs> Thought it was fine. <laughs> Hello and welcome to fuck. <laughs>